Oh, I didn't expect that. <clears throat> you know, as a speaker, you pray for audiences like this that are as informed and erudite and experienced um, as you. And then when you get it, you go into a white sheet panic. <laughs> <laughs> because you realize that um, no matter what you talk about, there's somebody, there's people out there who know more about it than you do. And so you wonder, what can I say? You know? And what I want to talk about today is really about something you don't know about, which is how I came to be who I am, and very briefly, and why I think it's germane. And it comes down to a very simple event in my life, which is I was born in San Mateo. And at five months uh, old, I was rushed to the hospital um, purple and blue the same color that people have when they suffocate. And I had the earliest recorded case of asthma in the history of San Mateo County. And this kept repeating itself when I was seven months, eight months, nine months. And I actually have memories of this. And my mother insists I don't, except I can tell her things that I saw during that time. But the memory that is most burnished in my mind was when I was 14 months old, I had the worst case and I was rushed to the hospital, and the hospital said that basically I was dead, and that they put me in an oxygen tent. And there I stayed for six weeks, strapped down with IVs, and they asked my mother and father to not come to the hospital, because when, I, when they did, I started to wriggle around, and I got upset. And for all of you who know me who think I'm sort of socially uh, inept, uh, now you know why. <laughs> and um, asthma continued throughout my life until I was 20 years old. And when I was 20, I read a book. And what it said was that if you're sick, it's your responsibility, no one else's. And I found that deeply offensive uh, and true. And. <laughs> And so I went on a very, very rare diet, real, not rare, but some of it is you know, constricted, which is rice and tea. And I did that for 10 days. And for the first time in my life, I wasn't taking medicine. Uh, when I was a teenager, I, was take, I had three different doctors prescribing pills for me. I was swallowing them like candy. And so. I was stunned. I wasn't, I said, well, I had doctors telling me when I was young that, oh, it must be your mother, it's psychological, it's this, it's that, get rid of the cats, all these kind of things that explain my condition, except they could do nothing for me. And as I grew up, I, I developed a deep suspicion about modern medicine, about any building where you came in and there was a receptionist. And, <laughs> And so I started to experiment, and I started to add things, of course, back into my diet. And I made myself a laboratory for a year. And what I discovered living here in the Bay Area was at that time, to eat natural foods, you had to go to Chinatown, to Japantown. You had to go to the Mission. You had to go to Lebanese stores. You had to go to Oakland, to the grain mill. You had to go. You spent the whole day Saturday doing your shopping, essentially. 
And having grown up part of my life on a farm, I thought there would be a place in society for a store that just sold natural food. And really, there was no natural food stores at that time. The health food stores had women in white hosiery dispensing things with no food at all. They're just nostrums. And I began my first company when I was 20. And it was in Boston. And uh, somebody walked in one day and said, how do you know that this is organic? And I said, well, because it says so. And then somebody asked me, well, how do you know it's cold-pressed oil? I said, well, because it says so. And I began to wonder myself, well, how did I know? And I wrote to the vendors of both companies, and I got letters of double talk, saying, well, not really cold-pressed, it's cold-processed, and we take out the steroids. Nobody really cold-presses anymore except the Italians. And, <laughs> and I realized that almost everything I was selling was a fraud. And if that had not happened, I would have opened the store and gone off and done something else. But it pissed me off. And it pissed me off in a way that I decided to replace and replicate everything that I was selling and then some from legitimate, honest farmers in this country who grew food organically or biodynamically. And that's what I set out to do. And in that process, as Kenny said, had 35 states, 57 farmers, 40,000 acres under contract. And this is in 1970s, so this is a long time ago. And those farmers are still farming, or their sons or daughters are farming those farms to this day. Uh, and of course, many, many more. Um, but in that process, because I was in Boston, there was a great debate at that time about natural foods, about food fatism, as it was called then. Uh, and my uh, opponent, if you will, uh, in debates and panel discussions was Dr. Fred Stair, who is the chairperson, the chairman of the Department of Nutrition at Harvard University. And he was a very interesting man. He was on the board of the Sugar Association of Kellogg's and uh, the American Canning Council. Uh, this is. And he was famous for saying at that time that a calorie is a calorie is a calorie, that there's a, no difference between kale and a donut when it comes to, the to human bodies. And he would, he would really go at me in these discussions and try to marginalize me. And he was vastly, uh, let's say, studied in nutrition. I wouldn't say informed, but he was certainly studied. <laughs> And, and published many papers. And I have to say, he got the upper hand in debate after debate, and, but I thought about it. And finally, you know, at a debate, I asked him to put his finger in his mouth. And he was like, well, you know, like put off by it. I said, go ahead, try it. And, So he did, and I said, you have on your finger 70 or 80 different chemicals that were invented since World War II. And I said, I think you're the fattest, because what I'm eating is kale and millet and seaweed and mushrooms, and everything I ate and eating goes to pre-biblical times. And what you're doing is mostly eating things invented since World War II. You're the one who's the experiment. I'm going to watch you and see what happens. Right? <laughs> As a 
as a contractor to growers around the country, uh, I went all around and flew to farms, learned a lot about farming uh, from them. And one of the farms that made a big impression on me was in Jefferson, or Jefferson, as they say in Louisiana. And uh, they grew long grain organic rice for us. And when I was down there and I'd walk the fields and I'd talk to the farmers, and you could see in different fields planes going over with carbamates, organochlorines, organophosphates. And, you know, I mean, it, it was, you realize when you stand out there that it is poison. It is poison out there. And to carve out an organic farm is not as easy as it sounds if you're next to other farmers. And what I saw in my, my farmer that took me, he said, I want to show you something. And what he showed me was dead pelicans. And those pelicans died because they ate fish and they ate the, that were eat, feeding on the rice seeds that were covered with methylmercury for fungicide, right? And now, methylmercury is a teratogen, a carcinogen, a mutagen. It's an embryocide. It's, it, it's amazing. It does everything, you know? And what I saw down there were these sprawled out, you know, pelicans, just dead, you know? And it's when I realized that we have invented in an economic system, then and now, that doesn't just kill life. It depends on killing life. That is our economic system. And until that time, I saw wildlands, and I saw wilderness as wilderness, and this is wild, and as parks and buffer zones and so forth, you know, and then there was the human-made world and agriculture. But the pelican at my feet, which world did he belong to? The human world, the wild world? And it was then that that, that sort of division sort of just swept away. It was gone. I never saw that anymore. I realized there was only one world. And it is a wild world. And just as I realized when I was 20, as I went through and tried to figure out what the heck I had been eating, that I had become a crash dummy for the chemical industry, I realized that the whole country is a crash dummy, crash dummy for what we call industrial progress. Right? And so in, I was so fortunate in my early childhood because um, it was miserable. <laughs> I, uh, my parents evaporated when I was nine. I left home when I was 12. I was picked up again by, and to be, family took me up, took me in until I was 14. I didn't like that so much and I left at 14 and I was on my own ever since, on the streets at first and then working and trying to go to school and you know, trying to figure out, you know, how to get into college and all that sort of stuff on my own. But because my life had been, frankly, miserable, I was so blessed. And I was blessed because I found my allies in the weeds and in sloughs and in swamps and in ditches and in creeks and so forth. That's where I found my friends and allies. And I was going around with, you know, perforated bottles, you know, of. Of, of polywogs, watching to see them grow up, you know. I had snakes in my pocket. My uncle was a herpetologist, so he taught me how to handle them, you know. I put horned toads also in my pocket just to scare people, but, you know. <laughs> but I was sure that they were dinosaurs. But the turning point in my life was when I was, I think, eight or nine years old, and I was at, uh, at my grandfather's farm. And there was this northern mockingbird that would just sing its heart out every night, just blaring away. 
And uh, I was in bed and I was always, I would sit up and I was struggling to breathe and not wake up my siblings, you know. And for me to hear something so beautiful as that in the middle of the night when I couldn't breathe and I couldn't sleep was like a visitation, you know. My grandfather would curse it in the morning for keeping him up and I would pray to it all night for keeping me up. <laughs> and it must have had, I don't know, 30 different sounds, a uh, hundred different songs, uh, extraordinary. Uh, it mimicked a, a woodpecker, it did crickets, it did cat, it did the cat, it did a crow, it did jays and red wings and orchard orioles and goldfinches. It would imitate whistling humans and just to tweak my grandfather, it imitated the unoiled old weather vane on the roof. That kept <laughs> And it did this all along while it was dancing and hopping and jumping up and down, you know, bobbing its head and jiving up and, and just like, I am having the best time in the world, you know? I don't know what's wrong with the rest of you guys. And I'm eating two, two times my weight every day in ants and wasps and grasshoppers just so I can sing and I don't care if anybody's listening. Right? I thought, there's my totem. That was what I, I knew that there was something else than this institutionalized, you know, alcohol-smelling, antiseptic hospital world, you know, of sickness, you know, and that there was something out there that was so sweet and so wonderful. And, and from being outside, and I stayed so much outside, I learned this, and that is that no matter what we do to nature, it doesn't matter whether we it's a creature, a plant, a forest, a wetland. It doesn't matter whether we drill it or scrape it or cover it or fill it or poison it, burn it. No matter what we do within a nanosecond, when we cease doing that, regeneration starts. Nature starts to regenerate. Nothing will stop that. It is true universally. And we are nature. We are nature. We, we see wild, you know, like, whoa, it's crazy or something like that, but wild is not crazy, you know? Um, we think of it as uncontrolled. Wild is not uncontrolled, you know? Wild means original. It means innate. It means authentic. It means instinctive. It means deep-rooted. It means sanguine. It means fearless, right? And the overwhelming array of industrial forces, you know, they're lined up against the living world, the pipelines, the mines, the pesticides, the pharmaceuticals, you know, the emissions, the trawlers, the foxcons, the banks, you know, all these things. They favor uniformity and sameness and oppression and repetition and hierarchy and force, you know. This is violence. This is death. This is not wild. You know, wild is exquisite. Wild is about benefiting all beings. That's what wild does. Wild benefits all living things. And Janine Benyus's famous words, life creates the conditions that are conducive to life, right? Wild is not crazy. Wild is just, is, is, a, is an awakening, you know? Crazy is double glazing the planet with the Carboniferous era. That's crazy, killing the oceans with carbonic acid. Crazy is sterilizing our soils and then genetically manipulating our seeds to fix our stupidity, right? 
crazy is drone attacks on women and children in Afghanistan and Pakistan, you know? That's not wild, that's psychotic. And a psychosis, a psychosis which is a severe mental disorder. It's when our thoughts or feelings are so impaired, you know, that we have no sense of the external world, right? Wild is this exquisite sensibility about the external world. So, I have this thing I was supposed to click. There it is. And what I want to show you is something wild is, I said, why we dance is why we write, sing, and protest and do permaculture. Uh, when I did the research for Blessed Unrest, I saw the hundreds and thousands of environmental organizations and social justice organizations as wildness. I saw them as organisms comprised of people who are diverse and adaptive, fierce, compassionate. And I saw them the way you see a forest, you know, emerging from a previous fire. You know, a swarm of eels, a wedge of geese, a scold of jays, you know. This is like a flutter of monarchs. It's an arc of doves, you know. What I saw here was really what I call the sixth kingdom of life. And I learned this, and I learned that the world is full of crazy wild fools like us. Holy wild ones, brilliant local scientists, healers and truth tellers who see the madness and who want to renew the troth with the living world. The critical issues are being addressed by this people's army uh, everywhere in the world. And our truest nature, as I said, is to live for the benefit of others. People everywhere in the world want to abolish corporate primacy, and they know that war should never be a business, that hunger is human wrong, and that food and water are human rights, and that dignity, respect, and the honoring of women is a right, and that there should be no street children or uneducated children, and that the loudest voices say the least, and that we can no longer define progress as fixing the problems caused by previous progress. And this world recognizes, remembers Walt Whitman's 150-year-old advice, which is to love the earth and the sun and the animals and despise riches and give alms and stand up for the stupid and the crazy and devote income to others and repel tyrants and argue not concerning God and have patience towards all people so that we make our flesh a poem, right? So that we make our flesh a poem. You know, nothing you see here was discussed by any national candidate, but these are the salient issues of our time. This is the agenda. But nevertheless, here in California, we can end the death penalty in two weeks with Prop 34. We can defang, defang three strikes provision and release thousands of prisoners from the prison industrial complex. What Ethan was talking about. And we can label all GMO foods when we pass Prop 37. And as my friend Angela Seven, friend and activist Angela Seven, who works at San Quentin, the maximum security prison down the road here, she wrote to me and said, with a message from the men inside there, and it says this, you may have given up on us, but we have not given up on you. 
We care about this earth, this planet, and we want to be a part of the movement to heal her. So if, our, if this is what's coming out of San Quentin, what the hell is coming out of Washington, D.C.? Seriously, where is that heart and aspiration and nobility and transcendence? I mean, we do all these things, but so many of them are difficult in, in amazing odds. And we do what cannot be done because it's the only way to learn how to do what cannot be done. That's why we do it. That's why I started the food business with $500, no paid in capital, no experience. My only experience in retail was actually selling some drugs on the side when I was a hippie. That was it. <laughs> right other than that, I knew nothing about going into business. And I didn't care about business, and I still don't care about business. I care about changing and transforming the world. And business happens to be it's like a scooter, it's like a car. You need to drive it, let's drive it. That's what business is. But it's no better or worse than that, right? And so we are trying to stitch together the fragments, you know, the shattered fragments of this exquisite mantle of life that clings to earth, you know, this fragile layer that comes with wings, you know, and legs and pads and scooty skins and scaly fins and shiny brown uh, and blue and green eyes, you know, and opposable thumbs, you know, this is what we're trying to put back together. And some of us see, you know, some see this as, oh, this is sort of, you, you, you guys are on the margins, you know. It's like you're insignificant, you're off base, you know. You're not part of the real markets, the real world, and the real wars, and the real money. But, but that real world is a total collective illusion, you know. It's the era of monumental ignorance. Because what we're doing, and what they're trying to do is win. What we're trying to do is not about winning, it's about losing. And it's about losing this burden of having to make it to be rich, to be comfortable, to be seen, to be famous, to be followed, to be friended, to be known. We don't need all that because it's an upside down world and the winners are the losers. And what we lose is the delusion and suffering that we are here on earth for ourselves, you know. That is such a delusion. Yeah. Takers suffer, <laughs> always. And we are told to vote for a taker we are being convinced that we should, you know, elect a taker to be the head of this country, you know. This is not how we create peace and justice, right? Wallace Stevens said <laughs> that after the final no, there comes a yes. And upon that yes, the future of the world depends. And I want to call out to the Wild Ones, yes to David Brower and Jane Goodall and Paul Stamets, and yes to Jody Evans and Code Pink and Bill Mollison and Atosa Sultani and Marina Silva, Sylvia Earle to Barry Lopez, Majora Carter, Bill McKibben, Sarah Crowell, who is just here, Michael Pollan, Janine, my friend, Shelja Patel, John Warner, Naya Noah Thompson, all of you here, millions of people, I, I hesitated to name names because I leave out so many extraordinary people when I do that. These are a garland of jewels that covers our planet right now. These are wild ones. You don't have to have tats on your neck or your butt, you know, to be wild. It's cool if you do, by the way, and I recommend it. But, uh, uh, but it's not absolutely necessary. And, um, 
And this yes is to breath and kindness, you know, uh, being conducive to life, you know, which is what we're talking about, is what every religion has tried to teach us. In the 99 attributes of Allah, you know, there is al-mukit, the guardian, the maintainer, the sustainer. In the paramitas of Buddhism, they contain the six principles of sustaining a generous living being. And the Sermon on the Mount, read it again. Blessed are the gentle, the merciful, the peacemakers, right? The salt of the earth, the light of the world, right? These are spiritual principles, but they are also ecological principles and they are pure biology, right? There is no difference between those at all. You know, we come together as we have and as we do here every year and as Matt Ridley says, so that ideas can have sex, right? <laughs> and it's an annual fertility ride of aspirations, <laughs> of insight and stories. I'm sure everybody went to bed real early last night. But it's just like those blackbirds and red wings outside. You, you see them right outside there. What, what, they're gathering, right? You can listen to them. It's beautiful when you come in to Marin Civic Center, right? It's the same thing, you know? Kenny and Nina got it right from the very, very beginning of Bioneers. It is all connected. It is all alive. And you heal a system, any system, whether it's economic or ecological, uh, by connecting more of it to itself. It's how you heal our body, right? And that's what you're doing, connecting more of it to itself, you know? And we choose to create a restored and vibrant and just world because we are willing to walk alongside our heartbreak and our fear. And we will do it from the beginning to the end, and we know, we know that we'll be set back again and again and again by the industrial economic system that we have all partaken of and created. And we know also that this world that we love so dearly is not really for us. It is not for us. Life is not for us. Life is for life. Right? And when we have that awakening, that, and I know you've had it sometime in your life, if not many times, that awakening, that not a thought that, oh, I'm a part of nature. No, no, no. The, that, that experience of being life, of being absolutely connected to everything and all beings, past, present, and future, so forth, you know, then you don't want a life is about you. You don't want it. And you understand the core of compassion and understanding. And that is enlightenment. That is awakening. That's all there is to it. That is everything, right? You can do it on the cushion if you want, but you can do it outside, <laughs> right? It's extraordinary. We do this for those who will pay the price, you know. 
if we fail. And we do it for those who will carry this incalculable hardship if we waver. And for those who are watching and wondering, you know, if we will choose to have more stuff or more life, more military bases, or more schools, or more dignified living wages, or more poverty. You know? And we have to ask, will every child be fed, clothed, and housed? Or are we going to build more gated communities for the beneficiaries of a rigged economic system? You know? And we do this not because it's lucrative or because it furthers our prospects. You know? We do this because it mobilizes and enlivens our spirit and intelligence. You know, these are not goals that we can achieve in our lifetime. These are goals that create a lifetime. And this is who you are. And all I'm doing this morning is holding up a mirror to your magnificence. Please, never forget it. Thank you.